and amen. Father, you deserve our adoration and our praise. You deserve our undivided attention. Father, we repent today because our attention is so often divided by so many other voices and so many other influences. Today, Lord, we nevertheless treasure the opportunity to set our attention upon your word and to direct our affections to your glory in worship. It's a reminder for us, Lord, that you are worthy of such things and that we trust your spirit to purify and to sanctify us as we behold your word and behold your beauty in worship to transform, to change us into the image of Christ our Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as our calendar marks the turn of a year. We're reminded of how you've taken care of us, preserved and protected us, both in body and soul this last year. You've guided and directed us. You've caused us to grow in our walk with you, many of us, Lord. Young people have made professions of faith. Lord, people that we have been able to witness to have perhaps their eyes have been opened to the Word of God for the first time. Lord, these are things to celebrate and to be encouraged by, but they're all due to your faithfulness and your care, your compassion, your steadfast love, the consistency of your Word, and your a love and affection for us, your church. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated and inspired by your faithfulness, that we might be more faithful to you, that we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, through your word proclaimed today and applied later this week as you grant us ability to do so, that we might walk in a manner worthy of your great name. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of being counted among the beloved, to be a stone fitted against our cornerstone Christ, to be regenerated and made new, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, remind us of our precious inheritance in Christ as we behold your scriptures today and equip us, Lord, to proclaim your word and deed and in speech as you lead us to opportunities to proclaim your glory to a world that is yet dark and lost in its deception and sin. We thank you, Lord, for the beacon of truth we find in 1 Corinthians. And as we open these scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Well, this morning, our first Sunday of 2024, we welcome a new year appropriately by the worship of our great Savior and by opening up His Holy Word. I encourage you to do so with me by turning to 1 Corinthians, our book that we are covering for Sunday of the month to accompany our Lord's Table Sunday, Communion Sundays. We'll be studying 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, for some time. There's a lot here even contained in just a few verses we'll cover today, in part because they establish and set the tone, I submit, for the rest of the book which follows. Before Paul addresses specific occasions, problems, by way of correction and instruction in writing, he is careful to set up the church, the ideal, to hold forth the standard and to remind the believers to whom he writes who they are, what it means to be the church, and as such, the standard to repair to. The title of this morning's message is Identity and Livelihood. Paul spends some time reinforcing, according to Christ, what is the nature of the church and also what will sustain them, what will give them life and endurance in spite of the difficulties that they may face, both internally, 
their sin and temptation and externally also the pressures and persecution from without. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim church essentials according to apostolic teaching, what it is to be the church and what, it, and what sustains the church. My goal is to proclaim these things from these verses this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 10, not according to my authority or understanding or insight, but instead to echo what the apostle has received by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. With that introduction and your hearts open and standing in reverence for the Word of God as you're able, will you rise for the hearing of the Word of God today? We behold the Holy Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 10. Here is the Word of God. Grace you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Paul anticipating much of what he will cover and expand. We have correction and instruction in the pages to follow. He introduces here, the standard and the ideal, as we have mentioned before, by way of affirmation. He affirms the Corinthians as a legitimate church, but he does so according to a measure. That is, Jesus Christ transforming the hearts of individuals and then binding them together as a group so at that assembly gathered in his name, they represent the body of Christ. They are, in fact, his bride. A quote from one commentary that I read this week, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, it uh, proceeds accordingly. This is a, a reference to a church father, Chrysostom. He's famous in the early church as a great early preacher. It's a second and third wave of disciples following the apostles echo what they have proclaimed. Chrysostom, quote, Chrysostom remarks that the name of Christ is oftener mentioned in this than in any other epistle. Pausing there. In older language, he's simply saying, that the name of Jesus, I haven't verified this firsthand, but I trust Chrysostom is correct. The name of Jesus is mentioned more in 1 Corinthians than in any of the other letters in the New Testament. Quote continues, The apostle designing thereby to draw them away from their party admiration of particular teachers to Christ alone. In other words, why is Jesus mentioned so much according to this early church father? Well, because the people to whom he writes were tempted to hold other voices and other authorities in competition with Christ. Paul wants to point them to the source and authority of the church, and so he points them to Christ alone, and in the first ten verses, no less therefore than ten times, mentions the name of Christ connected to concepts and ideas foundational to their livelihood and identity. Our introductory sermon from 1 Corinthians last month Noted how Paul set forth the ideal, the essence of the church, 
that he would call the Corinthians to repair to. This is who you are. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. So by an authority that was commissioned by the Lord Jesus, the founder and foundation of the church, and our brother Sosthenes, a fellow uh, a sojourner in the faith, so to speak, who has suffered for the name of Christ. He goes on in verse 2 to say, to the church that is in Cor Corinth. And then who is the church? A brief explanation is implied in the following, to those sanctified, that is made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Who is the church? Those who have been fundamentally changed by Jesus. Why? Because he called and appointed, elected, and chosen. They go on as evidence of this change to call themselves, themselves to call upon the name of the Lord. And he is their sovereign and their savior. And they acknowledge as much. Building on this theme, the verses that follow our text today, 3 through 10, proclaim the identity and livelihood of this group of people in Corinth, and it applies to us, of course, today as well. These are the qualifying factors that set apart the body of Christ from the world. What makes us different from the culture around us? We are rooted and grounded in Christ, as Paul expounds. All of these realities are connected directly to Jesus. Paul takes specific care to emphasize this in his opening epistle, in our verses today, seven references to Jesus' centrality to the church are, are here woven through the text. Paul acknowledges in verses 3 through 10 that grace and peace come from Jesus Christ. Grace was given to the church in Jesus Christ. Confirmation of the testimony has been received in Corinth about Christ. There has been a revealing of Christ that is expected, that will, that is on the, or there is a revealing of Christ on the horizon. This comes by way of the day of Christ. There is the fellowship of Christ that is referenced, the name of Christ, and this joins the acknowledgement of Paul as an apostle of Christ. The church is sanctified in Christ and identified as those who call upon the name of Christ, our Lord. As I said, no less than ten mentions to Jesus in the first 10 verses of this epistle, setting the tone for who uh, Paul draws the attention and points to so that the church, regardless of how many difficulties, errors, and perversions that they had entertained, how many problems and, and the corruption that was uh, riddled within their ranks, if they would but follow the pointing of this letter to Jesus Christ and repair to the essence and standard that he affirms in the first 10 verses, this will be their key to sanctification, to repentance, to growth, to being established firmly, fixed, so that they can thrive upon Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Paul, in our section today, in our verses today, affirms the church by way of three categories in the opening of his letter. We might call our last message, or we might identify that, those first two verses, as the salutation, the greeting. Uh, secondly, there's an invocation. That'll be point number one today. Paul affirms the church by way of invocation. He asks and answers what establishes the church. Secondly, by way of thanksgiving, he affirms the church. And here, the question, what spiritual evidence attends the church is addressed. And thirdly, there's an appeal in verse 10 with the question answered, what unites the church? And so this will be the basic outline for our message today. The church affirmed by way of invocation, thanksgiving, and appeal. First of all, invocation. 
What establishes the church? Just one verse to consider here, then a definition. Reading again verse 3, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A term invocation is used commonly with reference to an order of worship. Something at the beginning that sets the tone for the rest. It's a prayer of entreaty or request. It's often at the beginning of a service or here at the beginning of a letter. It's a prayer or to set the tone. It's a proclamation of authority and clarity and foundation. And so Paul opens his letter this way and his uh, charge to the church by appealing to the grace and peace of the Lord and his, that comes by way of our Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three elements here to note at least. Grace and peace, secondly, Father and Son, and thirdly, the source. Paul is not alone, nor is this letter the only example of this kind of invocation or opening. This or some variation may be familiar to you. That's for good reason. It's a reoccurring apostolic invocation or greeting at the beginning of many letters. Perhaps more than any other in Scripture, we have these words, or some variation of them, the prayer that grace and peace would attend the hearer. The book of Romans opens this way. Both 1st and 2nd Corinthians open this way, as do Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you see a pattern here, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Peter uses this as well in 1st and 2nd Peter, John in 1st or in 2nd John, as well as the book of Revelation. So in total, by my count, 17 of the 27 New Testament books begin with an invocation that God might bless the hearer and establish the tone of what they have to say on the basis of grace and peace. Why? Well, the answer is because I suggest to you that these, in these two words is the gospel summarized. Grace and peace is the message upon which the New Testament church is built. What does grace imply? Well, as you know, I'm sure, grace is unmerited favor. It's blessings given to us by one with the power and authority to grant them that the recipient does not deserve. God gives the blessing, we the sinner receive it, and it's by way of His favor, not by way of our deserving, our works, or our merit. Very basic gospel foundational uh, 101 place to start God's initiative on behalf of undeserving sinners. This is what grace implies. With grace in the gospel comes an atoning sacrifice. Grace provides something. What is that gift? Well, first and foremost, it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ represented at his table today which covers and deals with our sin. It, it satisfies the terms of judgment. It has provided this uh, a gift by way of God's steadfast love, His covenant-keeping mercies, His faithfulness to us, and therefore all glory belongs to Him. This is why we worship as a church. This is why it is right and proper and commanded that when we assemble, that the name of Jesus Christ be glorified and magnified, and that upon the praises of his people, our Lord would find a fitting throne upon which to shine, and that upon which his works and his worth and his attributes 
would be magnified, would be evident, would be on display, featured, and showcased as the church praises him. It's because he is worthy of it. Glory belongs to him. We are a church by grace alone. And then peace, grace and peace. What does peace imply? Well, no, we're no longer at enmity. We're no longer enemies with the Lord. The brokenness of covenant relationship lost in Adam and then the blood poisoning that infects all who are in Adam. Everyone born since Adam has been resolved, has been reconciled, has been repaired, has been restored. Peace implies debts have been paid. Justice has been satisfied. The covenant has been resurrected, put back together again, satisfied. Eternal reconciliation of a sinner with a holy God. We are never to forget these things. 17 references in scripture provide a pattern for us to be reminded regularly. And the meal spread before us today, the Lord's table, again, is all about grace and peace. What is the Lord's body and blood represented in these elements, if not a reminder, a tangible reminder, that we literally partake in upon our tongues and swallow, if not a tangible reminder of the atoning sacrifice sovereignly provided by grace. And that sacrifice then brings what? Peace, debts paid, justice satisfied, covenant restored, relationship established with the Holy God. Things we do not deserve, yet because we have received them, they establish us as the church. What establishes the church? Grace and peace. Paul goes on referencing two persons of the Trinity. Children remind us the Trinity is one God in three. Okay, adults, help me out. One God in three persons. That is correct. One God, three persons. The nature of the Godhead revealed to us in Scripture from passages exactly like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What establishes the church? The persons of the Trinity accomplishing the terms of redemption are necessary and are fundamental to the establishment of the church. It is necessary that God be Trinity for salvation to even be possible. If God the Father had not sent the Son, if they were not distinct in person, the Father to plan, the Son to purchase, and then thirdly, the Spirit to apply, there could be and would be no salvation. We're fresh on the heels of a season where we recognize often, celebrate and remind ourselves, commemorate the incarnation. What is the incarnation? Simply put, it is when God took on flesh, when Jesus became a man. God the Father, the Almighty, the one to commission and plan, sent His Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh. And in so doing, He became our covenant head. He suffered in our place. If He had not become a man, if the second person of the Trinity had not been obedient to the Father in His call and role in redemption, and this purpose of God to save for Himself the people, to establish Himself a church, we could not be saved. But because Jesus took on flesh, he became the perfect sacrifice, perfect in his sinlessness, and then also qualified in his humanity to stand in our place, to die in our place, and then to rise again, signaling our own resurrection one day. The Father and the Son are essential to the church, as is the Spirit, of course. And then finally, this word from, 
This preposition, as far as my English affords me, if I get the term right, is instructive as well. Grace you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is established upon grace and peace. The Father and the Son are essential, the Trinity, in accomplishing this. And this, our Lord, is the source. Here's uh, the, the ver- These verses and 16 others like it, those other references to grace and peace, provide a scriptural basis to include a reminder like this in the worship order of church or home. In other words, uh, here's an example. Um, before our dinners, we got inspired, I think, by Doug Wilson years ago. We were watching a uh, documentary. And before they sat down to eat, they all sang the dox- doxology. I'm sure you know it. It's a song so familiar that it perhaps deserves the definite, definite article, the, and then doxology, song of praise to describe it. So what song enjoys that title? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below, and so forth. So we sing that. We've come to sing that at each meal before we sit down, or as many as we remember anyway, or at, uh, throughout the week in our house. And I submit to you that there's biblical precedent to do this sort of thing. Seventeen times in Scripture we are reminded that grace and peace come to us from our Lord Jesus Christ, from God our Father. Therefore, we should be reminded of this, remind our children of this, remind ourselves when we gather that it is God who deserves praise from whom all blessings flow. So that's an application for you. We can take a cue from Scripture of the regular reminder of the foundation and source that establishes the church to remind our families, ourselves, as a church and in our homes of where our blessings flow from. When we pray before our meals, for instance, or sing a song such as I described, that is a good reason for doing that. More than just tradition or my parents used to do it or I think it's something nice or it seems like the right thing to do. We can go further and establish a biblical purpose We need to be reminded and remind others of the source and the foundation from whom all blessings flow, what establishes us as a church, what is the ground of our identity and livelihood. It is grace and peace supplied by God the Father who sent His Son and then by the uh, application of His Holy Spirit has changed our hearts. Paul affirms the church by way of invocation. Second major point this morning, he affirms the church by way of thanksgiving. And in this section, verses 4 through 9, he addresses this question, what spiritual evidence attends the church, and specifically this church in Corinth? Paul has reason to give thanks. He gives thanks because there is evidence of the Spirit at work among these people. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. He goes on, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you in verse 6. In verses 4 and 5, Paul gives thanks to the Lord for the evidence of the Spirit in the church in Corinth with reference to a past dimension. These are the called. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you that is something that has happened in the past, that has established them as a church, that in every way you were, you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. We tie this 
we dovetail this verse with verse 2, where Paul describes the church as those who are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Calling. The church, as, evid- as evidence in Paul's affirmation, are the called ones. As called ones, they have experienced union with Christ. When this reference to Christ in verse 4 This was got by grace, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This again, preposition, in Christ Jesus, becomes extremely important throughout Paul's theology that recurs through the course of his writings. It indicates union with Christ. What is union with Christ? What's identity so close to him that his experience becomes ours? For the elect, grace and peace comes by way of our union or you could say spiritual solidarity with Christ. Baptism and communion both picture this. Union with Christ is sometimes a more complicated or abstract thing for us to grasp. But think of your own baptism if you have been baptized. You went under the water, and as you did, you're identifying with Jesus' burial. Uh, Jesus was resurrected, and as the water drains off of you, you are identified with the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Jesus died for your sins, and by his blood they are washed away. That water reminds us. So when Jesus died on your behalf, he died as a representative for his people. This just basic covenantal theology, what federal headship means, what happens to the representative is also extended to those he represents. What happens to the covenant head is thereby the experience and the reality uh, that is of all who are in him. So those who are in Christ, the called in Christ, have received by way of union with him a death to sin, crucifixion to the old man, new life in him, and resurrection. And this is by virtue of his work on Calvary for us, which we're reminded of in communion, and our experience is shared with Christ that we are reminded of in baptism, reinforce this notion of this past dimension, this union with Christ. What has fundamentally happened to us that makes us different? Spiritual evidence that attends the church are those who praise God and have experienced this union. Now, this was important for Corinth, in part because as we go on to see, Corinth was preoccupied with who baptized them rather than by who they were baptized into. Do you recognize the distinction? Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Uh, Earlier, verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. He goes on, Christ did not send me, verse 14, to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is reminding the church in this, that they are the called, and they are called by virtue and changed by virtue of their union with Christ. Not their union with Him, not their union with Apollos, not their union with their favorite teacher, not their union with their, uh, you know, any set of circumstances independent of Christ alone. Not Paul, Apollos, or uh, Cephas, uh, Peter, holds the power to set them apart or to identify them as the church. 
That is to say, it makes all the difference who you're baptized into, not who baptized you. Secondly, the church is equipped. Evidence of the Spirit attending the church, Paul gives thanks for. Not only is he speaking to a group that are called by union of Christ, and therefore having received gospel riches, but also he's speaking to a people who have been equipped. Before expanding on that equipped, let me just say a quick word on gospel riches. In verse 5, he says that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and knowledge. This church, evidence of the Spirit among them, they have received riches. He uses two words here that will become increasingly important as he later brings correction. Two categories, applications of human intellect, a particular concern, speech and knowledge. What is valuable speech? What is valuable knowledge? Well, that is a question that the gospel answers. A knowledge and speech are disciplines of the soul easily misappropriated in a sinful culture. Think of our day. What value is assigned to what kind of speech, rhetoric, and what knowledge or source or content versus the gospel is often elevated at the expense of the glory of Christ? On the internet, you know, we live in an information age and it's full of voices and full of content. We can use terms like content creators or a great voice for a particular cause. We're going to be entering full speed into political season here. The caucuses of the presidential primary season are opening in Iowa in a couple of weeks. And so speech and voices will become very important. What do people pay attention to and why? Well, Paul points the people away from frivolous uh, speech to that which has merit and foundation and real value. The speech that is truly contains the riches and substance is that which is rooted in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, the Greeks then, just as um, our culture now, were distracted and led astray by sophists. Sophists said that the most impressive speech is that which has the power to persuade independent of what it stands for. The most impressive speech is that which has the power to persuade independent of what it stands for. Doesn't that sound like modern politics? Oh, he's a great politician. What does that mean? He really stands upon the law of God and his policies reflect that. And as he goes out and campaigns, it's clear that the vision he's casting for the future of his administration and our nation is that the word of God needs to be the foundation of our politics. No. A good politician is one who can wrap the crowd around his finger in today's more often than not in people's values today. He's the one who can persuade and hypnotize and manipulate to a particular end and compromise and twist and uh, in a Machiavellian way use his language to his particular devices and preferences. Well, this was a problem in Corinth and it's a problem today. So what Paul identifies is that evidence of the Spirit among you is that speech and knowledge rooted in the gospel is what you truly have that is of value. These disciplines of the soul easily misappropriated. Paul points to Jesus Christ again so many times so that he, in order to remind the church that the riches that they have received, that the, the wealth that they have acquired, 
by way of speech and knowledge, are rooted in substance, the Word of God and Jesus Christ. So they need to be reminded of that. And accordingly, on these grounds then, they will be equipped. He says in verse 6, Even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, Paul gives thanks for this, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to a church who's, who, uh, the Spirit, who evidences the Spirit's work among them in that they're not only called, but there's a present dimension. They are equipped. The God has given them equipment to stand in spite of the challenges that they faced. face. And what is this equipment? Two things. The testimony of Jesus Christ and secondly, spiritual gifts. He says, even as the testimony of Christ about Christ was confirmed among you. What is the testimony of Christ? Well, think of Christmas. Christmas is a testimony of Christ, is it not? We mentioned the incarnation. But there's so much more to the testimony of Jesus. That is, who Jesus is. When we consider him, what is his glory? What is his uh, reputation? What has he accomplished? And who is he? This is his testimony. Think of his pre-incarnate glory, Jesus Christ as God, the second person of the Trinity, as we mentioned. Think of Jesus and his testimony as creator. Jesus created and established this world by the word of his power, and he upholds it by the same, creator and sustainer of the universe. The testimony of Christ goes further, his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, rising before the Father to be seated at the throne, his session, which means even now his rule and reign over his dominion, all of history and all of creation, rightly returning to, and if it could be said, in even greater glory still, upon the accomplishment of redemption, his place of magnification at the right hand of the Father. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ that was confirmed in the church. That is, they had understood to some degree and appreciated this. Not only all of that Jesus had done through the course of history, covenant history, as we reference in those categories, but what Jesus had done in their lives, in their hearts, and in their church. The testimony of Jesus, that is, to save sinners, and to cause a heart to be regenerated. This is what is sustaining them and what Paul gives thanks for. Secondly, spiritual gifts. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This revealing that Paul speaks to is that likely that day that he refers to often of accounting. Paul sets up this perspective in his letters that we need to be mindful and remember that the linear direction of history is answering to a sovereign God and his Savior for how we've lived here. And the only way to be in good standing is to receive his gospel, which justifies, and his indwelling spirit, which sanctifies and prepares us for that great judgment day. Now, in anticipating the revealing of the Lord, Paul thanks the Lord for equipping this church with spiritual gifts. It may be helpful at this point to distinguish between spiritual gifts in a broad sense and in a narrow sense. This, again, later in the text will become important. In the broad sense, spiritual gifts are all that is enabled by 
and impossible without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul affirms this church and he thanks God that they are equipped because all that is enabled by and impossible without the Holy Spirit is evidence among them to keep them in the faith. That's spiritual gifts in the broad sense. In the narrow sense, there are particular manifestations of this. And these uh, tend to be, and these were at issue at the time as well. And they signaled Pentecost realized in the early church. Spiritual gifts in the narrow sense would include things like tongues, healing, prophecy, miracles, and signs. So that becomes um, important later as Paul addresses these and provides the context. And just anticipating this as well, Paul is going to or is going to proclaim to the church that the broad sense, the enabling of the presence of the Holy Spirit through His means will keep the church. And more than a particular manifestation of that, which may be tied to certain times and manifestations of His choosing, nevertheless, this promise that the Lord will not leave you nor forsake you, but will keep you regardless, and the good shepherd will not lose a single sheep. This is the evidence of the Spirit among them that Paul gives thanks for. Finally, they will be sustained not just for the present, but in future dimension as well. Verses 8 and 9, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, this revealing of the Lord or the day of the Lord that Paul refers to. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Spiritual evidence that Paul trusts will attend the church in the future, that they will be sustained unto the day of Jesus Christ. Reminded of a point of perspective that I mentioned before, living in light of the second coming. Anticipation of Jesus' return is a mark of the church whose mind is right and his priorities are well-ordered. Think of you're going to have some honored guests over for dinner. And uh, we had a few of you over for dinner on New Year's Eve. And uh, so I spent some time cleaning the house because, I, you know, it's a, you guys can relate to this. If you have people over, you want to make the place a bit presentable. My wife cre- did what she's good at, and I'm no good at creating a great meal and working on the food. And the kids were less, you know, they were helpful, more or less, depending on their age and their chores and how they perform that day. But all these preparations are in anticipation of a moment of arrival of honored guests. This is an illustration of a perspective the way we ought to live in light of future glory, in light of the return of Christ, and in light of our own death one day. Um, Jesus uses the parable of the uh, maidservants at the wedding who keep their wicks trimmed And the ones who were faithful had plenty of oil and kept their wicks burning. So at the moment when the bridegroom came, the honored guests, they were ready at his arrival. This is a perspective that sets the tone for the church. We are to be diligent to prepare our hearts to sweep out the sin, to confess wickedness, to set the table, so to speak, for the honored guests, if you will. We are to live in light of that coming day. How embarrassing Would it be if Jesus returned on a day when you were doing something foolish or when you were in the the middle of a a sin or something like like that, committing uh, a a grievous transgression against him and his word? 
We think, we think of that. And then and Paul uses this language to help us maintain this picture and perspective. More of that later. Suffice it to say for now that the, the church, in light of this future perspective, will be sustained. And three major things in verse 9. We'll just reference these briefly, but mark them perhaps for more contemplation on your own time. God is faithful, you were called, and the fellowship of his Son. What will keep this church? The faithfulness of God. What else is the assurance that this church can lean on? The effectual call. And thirdly, the fellowship of the Son. Faithfulness of God, the assurance of covenant, attending his people from time immemorial. We think of Aaron's prayer of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Lift up his countenance upon you. Our closing benediction verse last week. This is a prayer that reminds us of the faithfulness of God to always perform his covenant. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident, Paul says in that verse to another church, that what the Lord has begun in you, he will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. So hope for the future. The church will be sustained by the faithfulness of God. The church will be sustained according to his effectual call. God is faithful by whom you were called. Paul expands on this order of salvation in Romans 8, 28 through 30, saying there that all who are called, that he will raise up finally and save and will perform his duty to the utmost to bring us home. And then thirdly, the fellowship of his son. This also sustains the church. What is the fellowship of the son of Jesus? Well, here, let me quote another commentator, Albert Barnes in this case. He says, fellowship with the son is to participate with his son, Jesus Christ. That is to be partakers with him in the following. Be partakers in Jesus' feelings and views, in his trials and sufferings, in his inheritance and glory which await him, and in his triumph in the resurrection and future glory. Back to that in Christ language, the fellowship of his son, embracing Jesus' feelings and views, adopting a Christian worldview, if you will, building your life and understanding on the word of God. This is the fellowship of his son in part, counting it a joy and a privilege if God should call you to suffer on behalf of the name of Jesus. The early disciples and apostles were no stranger to this. And they embraced it, why? On the basis of the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the inheritance and in glory that awaits Jesus, that he has been ushered into the presence of the Father, so we join and share in that future promise to be united in him in heaven one day. And finally, in his triumph in the resurrection and future glory, that is, death is not the end for us, but indeed it is the door by which we will pass through unto the glorious revelation of his presence forever. The church will be sustained. So Paul gives thanks for these things. Final point, and most briefly this morning, Paul closes, or this section, with an appeal. So the church is affirmed by way of invocation. What establishes the church? Thanksgiving. What spiritual evidence attends the church? And thirdly, an appeal. What unites the church? What does unite the church? Well, these 10 references to Jesus Christ uh, should give us a clue. And in verse 10, even more specifically, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind 
and the same judgment. As Paul will move now in the following verses to address directly the first of the list of issues which occasion this letter, among them divisions, who is the most important and influential apostolic voice among them, for instance, he applies the salutary themes of his opening verses to the situation at hand with an appeal. What unites the church? Not me, not Apollos, not your favorite preacher, not your own experience. Jesus Christ, His name. An appeal to the matchless authority of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus. What is the name of Jesus? Well, we often say in closing to our prayers, in the name of Jesus, as something of an invocation. We should be careful, though, not to fall into the trap of thinking if we sign off with that phrase that will seal the prayer with some sort of you know, superstitious anointing or authority. We should rather be reminded when we say the name of Jesus of all who Jesus is. And we go back to what Paul has said, therefore. Grace was given to us and to the church in Jesus. This is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, to pray according to the grace and peace granted in him. What else does it mean? Confirmation of the testimony about Jesus, the name of Jesus, carries with it all that he has accomplished, all who he is. The revealing of Jesus, the day of Christ, the future coming of the Lord, the name of Jesus, encapsulates his authority to return for a day of reckoning, to bring accounting for all that will stand before him. The fellowship of Jesus, the name of Jesus uh, Christ is joined or is also referenced in reference to the authority of Paul secondarily as an apostle, sanctification in Christ, and the, and the church identified as those who call upon that great name. When Paul invokes the name of Jesus, he invokes and he appeals to Christ with these ten references by which he opens his letter and all the weight that they carry and bear with them. This is what unites the church. The name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the accomplishments of Jesus. Not the insights, not the secondary authority, not the reputation, not the influence of his servants. Paul pointing the church back to the ground, what unites them. And finally, let's close with an application of this. What unites the church? Well, the unity of the church is pictured at the Lord's table. All who are welcome at the table share a unity. They have all received an invitation by being saved, by being brought out of darkness into light, regenerate and transformed. That was your ticket. That was your invitation to the table of the Lord. Remember the picture I used before, preparing for an honored guest? You sweep the floors, perhaps you mop them, and you clean the table, you set it, with your finest china, and you wait for that moment when the guests arrived. And when they do, there's joy, there's fellowship, there's partaking in that meal together. There's unity in this relationship that you experience around that table. Imagine, we mentioned before, how preparations, the, the uh, illustration of us preparing for a meal. In truth, however, the real question is, what did God have to do to prepare for us to approach his table. You see, this is the gospel. In order for us to be welcomed, to be seated at his table in fellowship, his son had to die. 
in order for us to receive that invitation to come, he had to do something about our sin. In order for us to be welcomed at the table of the Lord, Jesus had to be born a man and take on the burden of our salvation. The real question in the gospel is what has the Lord done to prepare the table for us to be welcomed? If you have embraced, if you love Jesus Christ and have received him as your payment for your sins, as your Savior and as your Lord, then in that confession, as the Spirit has awakened your heart to newness of life, you have received an invitation to the Lord's table. And here, upon the name of Jesus, that is his work to prepare you, to prepare everything so that you can be welcomed at the table, is the basis of the unity of the church. Paul affirms us, secondarily, by way of the Corinthians, as he invokes the reminder of grace and peace, as he thanks the Lord for the evidence, sustaining, calling, and equipping his church, and as he makes his appeal to what unites us, he, through his letter, reminds us that the Lord's table ultimately is set by Jesus Christ, and all who have received him as their Savior are welcome to it. Let us transition in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reassurance of your holy scriptures, of the ground of our salvation, our identity, and our livelihood in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. At this table, Lord, we recognize that these elements came at the highest imaginable cost. The Son of God suffered and died in our place to secure our invitation to feast with him. Lord, I pray that the weight of your work on Calvary would be in our hearts, Lord, and be valued by us as we approach this table, even as we confess our sins and trust that Jesus' blood washes them away. I pray as we approach these elements, we would do so in the heart, recognizing these things, so that we might be, Lord, encouraged and built up in our faith as we remember the great gift and the great sacrifice that was made to accomplish it. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.